This morning we will be continuing in our study in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Last Sunday we learned that Christ has graciously given gifts to His church. Uh, He's given gifts to His church by grace, and these gifts are empowered by grace. These are the things that we studied last week. Uh, We read about the gifts in particular the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds who teach, they were gifts given by Christ to the church to lead the church and to, to train the church and to love and care for the church. And then we also heard about how every follower of Jesus Christ, every Christian, every believer has actually been given spiritual gifts as well, a spiritual gift or multiple gifts too for uh, certain purposes. And we'll talk about that. We looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 12. I know we're doing Ephesians, but we did look at 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and that's where we looked at one of the lists that's in the New Testament uh, that has spiritual gifts there. And so we looked at that, and we were able to examine four of the spiritual gifts in that passage. Do you remember what they were? Do you remember what we covered so far? Uh, We covered the spiritual gift of wisdom. Uh, We covered the spiritual gift of knowledge. We covered the spiritual gift of faith, which was different than saving faith. Uh, We covered the spiritual gift of healing. Um, Those are the four that we looked at. Uh, This morning we're going to look at four more. And as I'm talking about these gifts, these are the gifts that Christ has given to every believer. We're going to look at four more from that text. Uh, And then after that, we'll go ahead and ask and answer our third question. We did have three questions that uh, that we were working on. We did two of them last week, and this week we're going to ask and answer the third question, which is why did Christ give gifts to his church? And the answer for that is in our Ephesians passage. We'll have to swing back over to that. So if you'd like, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 again. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. And uh, it's always befitting to pray again before we enter this time of of study and reflection upon God's Word. Father, we do uh, lift up this time to you and we ask that, uh, that you would use your supernatural power to to penetrate our hearts with the truth, to change who we are, that that many of us in this room would come to some, well, all of us in this room, I suppose, would come to some realizations. It might be some in this room that do not know Christ at all. They don't have any history with Christ. They're not a Christian. They don't know about Jesus. There might be some in here that are Christians that aren't really aware of spiritual gifts and, and those things. And so we pray that you would enlighten us this morning, that you would send the Holy Spirit, give us a double unction of the Spirit this morning, so to speak, that we might understand and comprehend and apply the truth. And we do pray that you would be glorified during this time and uh, that we would humbly sit at your feet and listen to you speak to us through your holy word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So again, we covered four of the spiritual gifts last week. We're going to look at number five right now in the list, right? You're over there in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, right? If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, three of you are, the others are just tagging along. That's okay. Fifth spiritual gift is the spiritual gift of miracles. 
miracles. Verse 10, verse 10, miracles. Uh, the spiritual gift of miracles is in the same category as the spiritual gift of healing. It falls under the header of signs and wonders. And you might recall last week when we talked about healing and the signs and wonders and those, those gifts have actually ceased. They are, they're gone. They, they were enacted, activated by the Holy Spirit during a particular time in the church's history and that they actually ceased at a particular time. Um, and so healing is under that same umbrella. It's gone. Um, or healing and miracles are both under the same umbrella. Uh, but as I said, that doesn't mean that God does not heal or perform miracles. What it means is that God no longer imparts through grace that spiritual gift upon his servants. Uh, there, there aren't going to be people in the church today that actually have healing or miraculous powers. And, and I know that, you know, that sounds like a contradiction because there's a lot of people out there that, that claim to have those things, but, you know, claiming and displaying certain things doesn't necessarily mean that they actually have the gift. If the gift has ceased, then they must be doing something, but it doesn't mean that they have those spiritual gifts. And so I'm a, I'm a pretty much a firm believer that those gifts were for a particular time, for a particular season in the church, and that's the beginning of the church before the New Testament was completed, and, and so that stuff has all been done. The apostles have all done their job. God has used them, and so those gifts have come to an end, but that doesn't mean that there aren't miracles still in the world. God still does them. He just doesn't give the gift to individuals. Um, those things basically ended with the apostolic age around the turn of the first century. B.B. Uh, Warfield wrote, these miraculous gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Uh, their function confined them, he's speaking of the gifts, confined them distinctly to the apostolic church, and they necessarily passed away with it. And so that's a, that's a pretty trustworthy statement given by a renowned theologian. And, and, you know, then if you, if you just go beyond Warfield and all of this interpretation, if you look at signs and wonders in the New Testament, you will see patterns that show that they're gone, and we're going to get into more of that stuff. So that's, what does that mean? That means that believers today just don't have miraculous powers. They don't. They have the power of the Holy Spirit. They can proclaim the word and do things that are supernatural, but they can't heal and do those sorts of things. God doesn't use us that way anymore. So that gift is gone. And then number six, we have the gift of prophecy. That's also in verse 10. You probably see it there. The spiritual gift of prophecy it doesn't have to do right here in this new in the New Testament, really, I would say, as a general thing for you to understand, it doesn't have to do with foretelling future events. In the New Testament, it, it really doesn't have to do with that. When you see that gift show up or that word show up in Paul's epistles, he's not talking about those who can foresee the future and, and tell of future events. That's not what it means. And, and what's interesting is that the, the connotation of prediction was added sometime during the Middle Ages to prophecy. And that's a long time after the first century. That's a long time after the New Testament was actually written. So that connotation, that idea that prophecy means future telling, that was added during the Middle Ages by someone who was crafty. And so, but that is not to say as well that, that maybe the, you know, the prophets that some prophets in the Bible did not foretell 
future events. But when you see prophecy in the New Testament, don't think future telling, think of something else. Now we do know that there have been prophets, especially in the Old Testament, that did foresee future events and, and, and state what was going to happen. And many of these things happened long after they lived. And you think of Isaiah, you know, who predicted that Messiah, Jesus Christ, would, when he came, he would be a suffering servant, right? He would be kind of the opposite of what Israel thought. You know, they thought he's going to come and deliver us from Rome or from all of our physical enemies. He's going to be a physical deliverer and he's going to be really strong like King David was and all of this. And, and Isaiah says, well, no, uh, he's going to be quite different than you're thinking. He is a, he is a victorious king, but in a spiritual sense. But when he comes, he's going to lay down his life. I mean, he prophesied those things. When Jesus comes, he's going to be a suffering servant. And, and, and that's like 700 years before Jesus actually was born, you know, of a virgin in a manger, the whole Christmas story. 700 years. And, and what happened when Jesus came? He fulfilled the prophecies, many of the prophecies of Isaiah 53, which is what we're representing or uh, what we're referencing here. Prophecy in the New Testament usually has to do with proclaiming the Word of God. It has to do with preaching. And what is the Word of God? It is prophetic, right? So when someone stands in a pulpit and proclaims the Bible and preaches the Bible, they're preaching God's prophetic Word. And so that's what it has to do with in the New Testament. So when you see prophecy in the New Testament, think of good Bible preaching. Don't think of you know, well, and, and, you know, don't be like, uh, you know, camping, Howard Camping, or whatever the heck his name, what was that guy's name? Harold Camping, yeah, you know, well, Jesus is going to come back for the second time on October, you know, 4th, 1974, and then, you know, every time that those things didn't happen, he would just move the date forward. And, 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 and obviously his, his thinking comes from an ignorance of what prophecy in the New Testament actually means. So it, it really means to preach and proclaim the Word of God. It doesn't have to do with future telling. And so uh, if someone out there, and they do this all the time, he was prophesying about this or that. You know, if those things don't have with the prophetic Word of God, and most prophecy in church circles today doesn't really have anything to do with Scripture, just know that it's false. They're not actually prophesying. You know, they're, they're, it's wishful thinking, maybe we would classify that as. So it has to do with proclaiming the Word. The spiritual gift of prophecy is the ability to effectively, I would say effectively, proclaim God's prophetic Word before others. Now that can be a preacher, that can be you at work, with somebody at work where you know, you're talking to them and interacting and you're, and you're kind of preaching the Word to them, you're teaching them the Scripture. That's, that's the gift of the spiritual gift of prophecy, if you can do that. And, and so have I described you? Because that gift hasn't, it's not obsolete. It hasn't ceased. It's still around because it has to do with kind of proclaiming the word. So it's still here. So have I described you? Do you, are you someone who pretty regularly shares the gospel and the prophetic truth of God's word with others? Do you do that? If you do, you might have the spiritual gift of prophecy. Seven. We have the spiritual gift of discernment, uh, and it's actually defined as distinguishing between spirits in verse 10. That's what distinguishing between spirits means. It means discernment. Uh, the spiritual gift of discernment is the ability to examine, determine, 
and separate the genuine from the spurious, from what is false. Okay? Now, you need to know that, that the devil, Satan, is the father of lies, and his primary task is to lead people astray. And, and I tell you, he really, really works on the elect. He really, really works on Christians. He's always trying to lead us, believers, Christians, the elect, astray with all sorts of little things and contraptions and little lies and whispers and stuff. He actually uses, and this is what's really, really tragic and, and scary, is that he actually uses the truth, the Scripture, to try to lead people astray. And what he does is, you know, he'll, he'll feed you a little bit of Scripture, a little bit of truth, and you'll think, okay, this sounds right. And then he takes the truth and he, and he twists it just a little bit and slightly throws, you know, he kind of throws it off course a little bit and, and unsuspecting believers get kind of sucked into that thinking. You know, so, I mean, if you think about it, if he's our adversary and, and we're Christians, uh, wouldn't it make sense for your adversary to use something that you adhere to and something that you hold dear to your heart, the Scripture, the Word of God? Of course. He's not, Satan is not in the business of just coming right at believers with falsity and these sorts of things because he knows that we can detect those things. Most Christians have some level of discernment. So what he does is he, he, he shares a little bit of Scripture and truth and then he puts a little bend in it or he adds something to it or he subtracts something to it. And the next thing you know, you have a whole bunch of Christians thinking that homosexuality is not a sin. That's what happens. One of the devil's tactics in that whole subject there is is to make it look like that love is love and that's what prevails. And so love transcends, um, you know, it transcends uh, our human identity as men and women. As long as people are actually loving each other, that's what actually counts and that's what God is after. And so if men love each other in a, in a, in some kind of a way that's wholesome or whatever or it's genuine, then it must be acceptable by God. See, that's a ploy of the devil right there. And we're all saying to ourselves, well, you know, none of us would fall for that. Well, then why is it that, you know, the percentage of professed believers are falling for that? See, devil, the devil just takes a truth and, and he takes love and he distorts it and he twists it. And the next thing you know, you have Christians down at the end of the line who are doing his bidding now. And it, I know it seems like, well, you, you talk about homosexuality and these things. I'm not picking on homosexuals at all. I'm just using it as an example, and it's a phenomenon today in the church, and it's very prevalent. I'm, I'm finding that people that I've fellowshiped with for some period of time or have known for 10 plus years, and that's the direction they've gone in. And it's very disturbing. And it is what the devil does. And so you can tell that these, if they are true believers, they do not have the spiritual gift of discernment. They can't tell or they can't even, they don't, they can't, you know, they, they don't have, uh, the, the nasal power to sniff out an error when something twists. They, they can't see it. It's really frightening. The, uh, and that's exactly what the spiritual gift of discernment is. It is a believer's ability to discern and recognize when a person is off. When a person is off. It's, it's like the, per, the person that has the spiritual gift of discernment, it's like when they're listening to someone, speak or they're reading something or they're watching something on TV maybe it has to do with God's word uh they it's an alarm when they hear something that's felonious an alarm goes off inside of them and says wait a minute that's not accurate that's not accurate at all and so that's how you can kind of tell if you have that gift and and I would say every believer has it to some degree but there are 
those who are anointed with it in a way that is is kind of beyond the average typical believer. And I would think that it's even a gift that can be um, developed in the life of a believer because the more that you understand and read and study God's Word and pray and become solidified in sound doctrine, the more you can sniff out the garbage. So that's the spiritual gift of discernment. Have I described you? Do you have that? You know, do you have that gift? Then you have number eight, which is one of my all-time favorites and most controversial, and that would be the spiritual gift of tongues coupled with interpretation. Now, the Bible teaches that, that tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, has to do with the supernatural ability to proclaim the gospel in an unlearned language. So what that means is that you know, someone who is a believer, if they have the gift, they could be before people who don't speak their language and supernaturally have the ability to proclaim the gospel in front of those. And they don't, you know, I don't know Spanish, and all of a sudden, I'm rolling it off. That's what it would look like. It would look like something like that. And I don't think is actually Spanish. I think that's something else, right? If you speak Spanish, no offense. I don't know Spanish. That's as close. I got guys I work with at Outlaws that speak Spanish, and they're like, that's how quick they speak it. They do. They're just, and I'm just going, I think they're talking about me. I don't know. I heard white guy in there, right? I heard gringo. Uh, Yeah. So it, that's what it is. It has, and, and then interpretation is like it, right? It, it, it has to do with um, uh, being able to interpret in an unlearned language. It's, it's like that. Now, tongues and interpretation belong to the same category as healing and miracles, which means that they have also ceased. Tongues are under the header of signs and wonders. They were given for a particular reason, for a particular purpose, for a t- particular two particular people. There were certain people that got it, not everyone, and for a particular reason. When you study signs and wonders or healings, miracles, tongues, those sorts of things in the New Testament, you will discover certain characteristics and patterns in the Scripture that support cessation or that they have come to an end. And, and, I, and I would say that, you know, do some work yourself and look into this stuff and study it so you can learn on your own. But uh, because that I think that whenever we do the research and work ourselves, these subjects, we become more and more convinced they're more valid to us beyond what somebody is just telling you, like what I'm saying now. But look into them. But if you look, there are patterns there. Um, while signs and wonders are fairly common, in the earlier parts of the New Testament, and they are, there is not a single reference to any of them in the later writings of the New Testament. So what I'm saying is, is that signs and wonders appear in the early writings, but in the middle and later writings, they're gone. And that's interesting, right? Okay, so why, if those things are for today, why wouldn't they be threaded all the way through the New Testament, the early writings, the middle writings, and the later writings? It's a good question to ask, you will not find signs and wonders, tongues, these sorts of things in Paul's prison epistles. Okay, that's Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. There's no mention of those things. And and don't think, yeah, there are. You're talking about them right now. I'm talking about Corinthians right now. I'm talking about Ephesians, which was written later. There's no mention of signs and wonders in those. There's no 
tongues or healing or miracles in those things. You will not find them in Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians. You will not find them in Paul's pastoral epistles. That's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And let me tell you something right now. If there were going to be a place for those things to be present, it would be in those writings in the Tim letters and in Titus because those are written to pastors for pastors. And they describe how the pastor is to minister. And if those things aren't mentioned there, that must mean that Paul, what he meant was, I don't want you to minister in those things. I mean, Paul literally wrote in those letters 90 imperative verbs. 90 imperative verbs. Do this, do that. They cover all of the important aspects of a pastor's life and a pastor's ministry in the church. And never once in any of those instructions does he say a pastor should exercise the spiritual gifts of healing, miracles, or tongues. And nowhere in any of those letters there does he encourage pastors to encourage their church to engage in those things. They're just gone. And I'm just telling you, if they're not in those pastoral epistles, something's got to be going on here because he would have told Timothy and Titus, those men, those leaders, those elders, to train other elders to do those things or to seek those gifts and to move forward with them, utilize those things in the church. He would have done that. Any place at all would have been in those letters. You will not find signs and wonders in the epistles of Peter. You will not find them in the epistles of John 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You will not find them in one of my favorite books in the New Testament, which is really the whole Bible in a handful of chapters, and that's Hebrews, which may have been written by Paul or Barnabas or somebody else. You don't see those things in any of that stuff. Those are the later writings. Gone! They fall off the face of the earth. Miracles are mentioned in Revelation, but if you look at them in each occurrence, they are in reference to either past miracles or future miracles which have to do with the events surrounding the last days. So that's the only place. I mean, I, I, my son and I, we uh, Ryan, we did a little word study the other day and we opened up Bible Gateway, we typed in ESV and we typed in the word tongues. And you see it like in Acts and you see it in 1 Corinthians and then it's gone. You don't see it anywhere else. And I was like, oh, what happened? It's gone. Why do people keep doing it today? Now, something else to consider. Paul had, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the one who penned this letter, he had the spiritual gift of healing. He had it. He healed a lot of people when he was going out and planting churches and, and proclaiming the gospel, right? You think of the crippled man at Lystra that he healed, and that almost got him killed when he did that. Why didn't he, if he had the spiritual gift of healing, why, and this is, I know it's conjecture, but I, I think it's just, I'm trying to build a case here, so bear with me. Why didn't he heal his friend and ministry partner, Trophimus, when he got sick, when he got very, very ill? Paul, if Paul had, you would think if a guy had the spiritual gift of healing and one of your right-hand guys gets blown out and can't serve and he's bedridden, you would think that he would exercise the gift to heal him so that he can be restored. I mean, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm just saying. What about, uh, how about Epaphroditus? Right? Epaphroditus got so sick he almost died. Why didn't, Epaphroditus was like one of Paul's besties. I believe he, de he de delivered the, uh, the, the Philippian letter to the Philippian church or churches. This was a, this was a, a solid, amazing guy who all, he got so sick. He was on the verge, he was on the precipice of death. Why didn't Paul heal him? 
See, Paul left Trophimus in Ephesus so he could recover, hopefully. He didn't heal Epaphroditus. Even Timothy, his young protege, even Timothy had a stomach ailment. And I tell you what, this, this kid, Timothy, he toured with Paul for about 11 years. Planting churches, doing ministry. He was Paul's missions partner. And he had a very serious stomach ailment. We would probably call that an ulcer today. And Paul has the spiritual gift of healing, a signs and wonder gift. Why doesn't he heal Timothy? You know what he tells him to do? Drink some wine. Okay. Drink a little wine. It'll be good for your stomach. And wine was used for those purposes back then. He didn't heal him. He didn't heal Epaphroditus. He didn't heal Trophimus. He didn't heal any of those guys. Could it be the reason why he didn't? It's because the gift, the signs and wonder gifts, the gift of healing was gone? Certainly could be. Could be. I don't know. There are so many other factors and things that you will notice about the spiritual gift of tongues maybe in particular in the New Testament. Here's some facts for you. The spiritual gift of tongues is always in reference to earthly languages, not gibberish. It's always in reference to earthly languages, the languages that people speak. There's there's no provision for this kind of stuff that you, and that was not Spanish, that was the, you know, the gibberish that you see today in the church when people claim to be speaking in tongues and they're speaking in unintelligible languages. Well, nowhere in the New Testament is the word tongues or tongues itself in reference to something other than earthly language. It's not gibberish. And guess what? Tongues does not have to do with an angelic language. There's a passage that says, where Paul says, if I, if I had the eloquence to speak like, you know, uh, the tongues of angels. And so now all of a sudden we have angelic tongues. And if you read that whole passage, he's using hyperbole. Doesn't have, he didn't all of a sudden define that there's an angelic language. What good would it do for an angel who are messengers to come down here on God's behalf to speak to someone and go, and we're going, I don't know. The angel must speak a language that I can understand so I can obey the Lord. And angels up in heaven aren't going, I just, I know it's silly, but I'm kind of blown away by what we see in the church today with these things. I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm arrogant or I got it all down, but I tell you, it's just a bizarre thing. I don't, there's no provision for any of these things. Okay, here's another one. There are only three episodes in the New Testament where we actually see people speak in tongues. Well, I think they're everywhere in there. No. There's only three episodes where we, three encounters, or uh, if you will, or episodes or things that played out where we actually see people speaking in tongues. Now, tongues are mentioned in a couple other places, but that, that's, they're talking about tongues. They're, people aren't speaking in them. There's only three episodes in the New Testament where we actually see people speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. You know, Paul goes into Ephesus and, and there's some guys there that, that don't quite understand the gospel and they get saved. The Spirit comes upon them and they speak back and forth in unlearned languages and they can understand. Chapter 10 of Acts has to do with Cornelius. And Peter, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, I think it was in Caesarea, and Cornelius is a centurion, he's a Roman, he's not Jewish, and Peter proclaims the gospel, they get saved, the Spirit comes upon them, 
all of a sudden, his whole household, everyone there is speaking in unlearned languages, and they all understand the gospel and these things. Those are the only three encounters or episodes that we have. And here are the common denominators with each of them. In each episode, entire groups spoke in tongues. You will never find in the Bible one person speaking in tongues or even a pair of them. Three encounters, all three times. It's an entire household. It's 3,000, I don't know, it's 120 people. Then all of a sudden, more than that on the day of Pentecost. It's always groups of people that are speaking in tongues. It's never one, two, or even three. In each episode, an apostle or apostles were present. There aren't any apostles today. You'll, in the three episodes, you're not going to find a, a, an episode there where there isn't an apostle present, whether it be Paul or someone else, Peter. There's always an apostle present when they happen. In each, in each episode, new converts, new Christians, new believers are present. So what's that say about today when there's you know no new believers and it's a bunch of old believers doing it? How about this? In each episode, Jews were present. The apostles were Jews. They always had people with them that were Jewish believers. There's always Jews present. There's always apostles present. It's always groups. There's always new Christians present. I mean, it just kind of narrows it down a little bit, doesn't it? Well, that doesn't mean that it can't go beyond that. Well, why don't, if we're going to be biblical, let's follow what the Bible does and says. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, that says, tongues will cease? And I think he says that prophecy and knowledge will cease too, but he says prophecy and knowledge will cease when the perfect comes, the second coming of the Lord. Tongues is not mentioned when it'll cease. Why? Because it's already gone. It's already gone when he writes 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Or it's going to be gone shortly after that. No, okay, so if, if tongues has ceased, then, then why did Paul talk about it so much in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? I've already answered this question. The gift of tongues was still in use when he wrote that letter. He wrote it before he went to Rome. It seems like if you study the New Testament, the cutoff point for signs and wonders is when Paul gets imprisoned at Rome. From there on out, they're gone. And what have I been saying for several years now? I believe they ceased when the apostles all died off. There's a strong possibility, if you study the Bible, that they ended long before they were dead. And when he went to, and that's another thing. He sat in a Roman prison and languished for years, and in other encounters, he was broken out by God. He wasn't broken out in Rome. Just saying. So, what about the Christians who claim to speak in tongues today? Because they're everywhere. Well, if you compare what the Bible says about tongues, the things that we've talked about, and there is much, much more, and I would encourage anyone who's interested in that subject to visit our website, read our Statement of Faith, and listen to our series, Testing the Spirits. We... Uh, came at this subject a couple of years ago, and it was really, really helpful. If you're interested, do that. But if you compare what the Bible says about tongues, and signs and wonders in particular, with what these people are doing today, you will discover that someone is off. It's either the Bible that's off, or it's them. 
You will see that there's an inconsist there are many, many inconsistencies with what they're doing and practicing and with what Scripture clearly teaches. And that's the thing I think that kind of blows my mind. You know, this is a mysterious subject. It's actually really, really clear in Scripture. It's not that we can't understand what's going on here. There are patterns. So what does that mean? It means that I'm not going to say, do you have that gift? Let me tell you what the official position of RHC is. Okay? Through careful analysis and biblical study, we believe that tongues has either ceased, is completely gone, or, if it's around still, it is insanely rare. I think it's gone. And the reason why, the reason why I hang on to it a little bit is because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. The gift has been put in place for the building up of believers. And that there are some cases that I've heard where actual, like tongues is actually done rightly, and that's where an unlearned language is spoken and interpret, interpreted by someone else who doesn't understand the language. And so there are some cases where that's happened, and I tell you, that'd be pretty hard to fabricate. So I, I'm not really, will, I'm like 99%. There's a small chance that it could still be out there, but I think it's so rare. Don't believe Kenneth Copeland and these shysters on TV. What they're doing is just, it's strange fire and it's blasphemous. Because anytime we attribute to the Holy Spirit that which he is not about or does, it's called blasphemy. And the scripture says that's the unpardonable sin. It's very important that we understand that. You don't want to attribute something to God that he doesn't do. So, we don't have that gift. It's gone. Now, in Romans 12, 3 through 8, we read it earlier, uh, it features gifts that are not listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll, I'll read off a couple of them, right? These are important. There's, there's, there's other spiritual gifts that aren't listed in 1 Corinthians 12. How about the spiritual gift of hospitality? Some might argue that that's not a spiritual gift, but it's actually under the header of, header of spiritual gifts in Romans. I believe that Hospitality is a twofold gift. It's part natural. You might have a natural ability to serve others, but I do think it's supernatural too. I think there's a spiritual component to it. But that's what it has to do with serving others. I would say someone who has the gift of hospitality is more hospitable to others than someone who isn't. All of us have a propensity to be hospitable to people. We have them over and all that. But I would say one who has the gift takes that to another level. And, and quite frankly, it comes very natural to them because it doesn't come natural to all of us, right? Because if it did, when that unsuspecting person shows up at our house and we're in our pajamas, we wouldn't explode. We'd say, come on in, this is awkward, but let's have some fellowship. I don't know what you'd say. But you know what I'm talking about, right? The person, I think, who has the spiritual gift of hospitality is more open to people dropping. I don't know. I can't stand it, so obviously I don't have the gift. So don't drop by. I live in series. I'm never prepared. When I'm at home, I'm like pajama guy. I go over to the Tate's house. They're ready to go out on the town. James is dressed and his hair's done and he's got, he's got his typical trademark polos on and all that. And I'm like, and you know, and then, and they, they're always joking with us and hammering us about not being dressed. You know, like, hey, I know what you're doing right now. It's three in the afternoon. You're sitting in your pajamas, aren't you? 
How'd you know? He has the gift of prophecy. You know? I'm, I'm like, when I'm home, I'm chilling. And if you drop in on me, man, I'm going to be like, oh, give me the spiritual gift of hospitality, Lord. I don't know. Maybe somebody who has that is more likely to be engaged in that. There's the spiritual gift of exhortation. That's encouraging people, encouraging others, exhorting them to do what's right or to, to live a certain way. There's a spiritual gift of generosity. Isn't it crazy to think that that's actually a spiritual gift? So every Christian has that, right? Because every Christian gives a little something. Well, that's not true. No, I think that the spiritual gift of generosity has to do with someone who has an attitude and heart to go way beyond what the normal person does. They're just consistently generous with all that they have. Always. You know, you need a sweater, here you go. They're just, they're just, that's, it's, it's rising above the typical level of generosity. I think the spiritual gift is beyond that. Because all Christians have been generously given God's saving grace and are called to be generous with others, right? It's, it's, it's the grace of God that, that creates within us a generous attitude to give back to the Lord and to others. But I think that the spiritual gift of it is just, just, it's a click or two above the normal. There's the spiritual gift of leadership that's overseeing others and administration. There's the spiritual gift of mercy that's comforting others. I'm not terrible at that, but I don't know if I actually have the spiritual gift of it. I'm, I'm one of those guys that, you know, it, somebody's hurting and, you know, I was interacting with a guy the other day and he's all jacked up and he doesn't go to this church. And uh, that doesn't mean that he wouldn't be if he came here. Uh, that was weird. Um, but he's he's gotten really, really twisted in his thinking. And now he calls him a believer forever. And now he calls himself an atheist and all these things. And, you know, and, and how did, you know, how did Pastor Phil minister to him? He loaded his Bible bazooka. You know, and I'm just realizing you just don't have the spiritual gift of mercy, do you? Or patience. For one thing, he was blaspheming like crazy, and that really made me mad. But, you know, I just I realized, all right, back it off a little bit. Try to listen to him. And once I did that, he chilled out and quit using every expletive in the English dictionary to describe me as the devil's child. And it was just really weird. But mercy, you can have the spiritual gift of mercy, which means that you, you have a strong leaning towards mercy. Every Christian is called to give mercy, but some give it in a way that's, we would almost say, what's wrong with him, man? He's so like Jesus. I've met people with it. I mean, you can just smash them in the chops, and they're like, the Lord loves you. Smash them again, the Lord really loves you. Smash them again, then they hit you back. It's interesting. So those are more of them. And then there are also what I call natural gifts. We might say that they're talents, right? Natural gifts have to do with our ability to perform certain physical tasks like playing sports or maybe mental abilities that we have like problem solving or these sorts of things. People do have natural gifts as well. Uh, I think of the pro football player who can, you know, make diving catches and this, you know, the field goal kicker, you know, Jason Elam who can kick a 63 yard field goal. I mean, that's unreal. I would call that the natural gift of athleticism. That's insane. When I kick a field goal, it goes like that way. You know, I've never even kicked a field goal. Has anyone in here ever kicked one? I can't kick anything. I can kick people's butts on accident. That's about it. 
that's the gift. That would be like a natural gift of athleticism, right? You think of Michael Jordan. I think he's easily the greatest basketball player of all time. And he has this natural gift of athleticism. Pro football players, basketball players, they all have it. Um, in some capacities, some stronger than others. Think of Claude Monet, an amazing painter, obviously, and, and maybe Mozart. These guys had natural gifts, artistry gifts. Uh, you think of um, Bezalel. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with him, an Old Testament guy who built the Ark of the Covenant. He had the natural gift of craftsmanship. I mean, just the, the Ark of the Covenant was just a beautiful piece of art. You think of Einstein, right? Naturally gifted at math. <laughs> Science. I mean, it's like, I know I don't have that natural gift. One plus one is nine. You know, that's me. Um, Robert Oppenheimer, who developed the first atomic bomb. Obviously, he had a team. But you talk about being naturally gifted with math and, and engineering types of gifts and things like that. And I don't know why I use that as an example, because it's like a bomb that kills people. Um, these are examples, though, of natural gifts, whether they be, you know, brain power gifts or physical talents, these sorts of things. And, and, and people have these gifts, too. You know, people have natural gifts. They have these spiritual gifts. Now, another thing, too, to consider is that spiritual gifts and natural gifts can and should be developed. All right, look, you can't make yourself have a spiritual gift. They're given gifts. And, and in some capacity, God blesses people with natural gifts as well. I would say everything comes from God. But if you have a spiritual gift, you need to work on further developing it. Like discernment. If you have the spiritual gift of discernment, dividing the spirit, that doesn't mean that you're an expert at discernment. It means you have the starting point. Now work on it through study and these sorts of things in prayer. And same thing with natural gifts, right? A person might be naturally gifted with athleticism, but they still need to practice and sharpen and hone that gift. And so you need to understand these things need to be further developed. And spiritual gifts, gifts are further developed through Bible reading, Bible study, prayer, training, and practice. Actually using your gifts, employing your gifts. Practicing your gifts. That's how you get good at utilizing your gift. So nobody that has a spiritual gift just starts off with a you know, perfect level of ability. It's given, and it's given as a gift, and it's received as a gift, and now we need to focus on it and work on it and sharpen that and train it and so on and so forth. Same thing happens with natural gifts. So we've already asked and answered two questions. Who did Christ give gifts to? Right, We did that last week. And what are... Christ's gifts to the church. We just got done covering those. and There's probably a few more in the Scripture, but we've covered a lot of them. It's now time to ask and answer the third question, right? Yeah! Turn over to Ephesians 4. So now we can get back to our text. Ephesians chapter 4. Question number 3. Why did Christ give gifts to His church? What's the purpose of them? We already learned that He's given them. We've already learned what they are. Now we have to ask and answer the question, why did He give them, right? Answer, Christ gave gifts to His church for the purpose of building up the church. And that's what we read in verses 12 through 16 of Ephesians 4. What does it say? Verse 4, to equip, right? The gifts were given. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may be no longer uh, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes verse 15 rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every or each part is working properly, what happens makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so now let's just break that down because there's a lot going on there. Let's break it down. Look at verse 12a with me to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All right, look, Paul has just described apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds who teach in verse 11. So verse 12 has to do with them using their gifts for this purpose. He's speaking to them right now. now during the apostolic era, it was the task of the apostles and prophets to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It was their job to do that primarily. Today, it is the task of evangelists, shepherds, and I will add, and that would be shepherds who teach, but I will also add teachers, because in Romans 12.7, we see teachers mentioned there, and it doesn't have to do with shepherding. It's a different kind of vocation. So, back in the old days, it was the apostles and prophets who did that, who equipped the saints for the ministry or the work of the ministry, and today and after the apostolic era, it's the evangelists, the shepherds who teach, and teachers who do that. That's their job to do that. The question is, how are the saints equipped for the work of the ministry? How, how, how do evangelists and teachers and shepherds do this? How do we equip? What must the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers do to accomplish this? Equip is an interesting word. It's katartismos in Greek, which means to restore to original condition or to be made complete. So that's, that's like what the leader in the church is to be doing, is to be working. Equipping has to do with that. It has to do with making complete. It has to do with restoring to original condition. And the interesting thing is, is how is that achieved? How, how, what is the tool, what are the tools that, that this person would use to equip, to restore? Well, of course it'd be Bible preaching and, and Bible teaching, and doctrinal training, and teaching, and prayer, and those sorts of things. Those are the tools. Now, I think that uh, this katartismos is a really interesting word and phrase. In the, uh, in the first century, it was used as a medical term for setting bones. Okay? Katartismos had to do with with someone who would come into a doctor, or a, you know, a physician's office in those days with a broken bone, and this this, they, the doctor would set the bone, put it back in place. And that's what karatismos means. It means to restore back to the original condition. Paul used the verb form of it in his closing admonition to the Corinthian believers. He said, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice! Strive for karatismos. What? Full restoration. There's a completeness that has to do with this equipping here. It's to take one who is not restored, and to work on restoring them and bringing them back to their original. It has to do with bringing a person back to the original mode. 
And, and, and immediately I think of, well, what's our original mode? What would be the pre-fallen mode? It would be before Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It would be like the original Adam and Eve before sin entered their lives and into the world. Equipping has to do with bringing us back, a Christian back to that state. And what was taking place during that state? Knowing God, fellowship with God, intimacy with God, obedience to God, right? Those kinds of things. So it has to do with restoring. But I would say that it has less to do with making us like Adam and Eve and far more to do with making us like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Because that's the point of salvation, is to make us like Christ. I thought it was heaven. It is. But it's to make us like Christ on earth and in heaven. An equipped saint is one who has been made like the unfallen Adam, or better yet, like the second Adam, Jesus. Now, as I said, how does the evangelist, shepherd, and teacher equip the saints? Well, he equips them through preaching the Word, and he equips them through biblical counsel and you know, encouragement. He equips them through setting an example. This is huge. You have to have guys in place that actually are really working to live out the faith and to model the life of Christ. It's very challenging for us, but you want someone who's modeling that. You don't want a guy who's preaching it all the time, who lives like a maniac. He has to, you know, he has to be faithful to the Lord in word and deed and model that for believers. And obviously prayer is a huge tool. Now what, good question too, what is the work of the ministry? How did Paul define it here, okay? How did he define it? What is the work of the ministry? Look at 12b, building up the body of Christ. Building up the body of Christ. The work of the ministry is building up the body of Christ, which is the church. Now let's get this straight. And this is what Paul has said so far, right? The evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, they use their spiritual and natural gifts to equip you, to equip the saints, to equip Christians. And you, the saints, are to use your spiritual and natural gifts to build one another up. That's the order. You see how it works? The leaders build you up. You get built up and trained prepared for ministry, and you build one another up. So it all has to do with service. It all has to do with building each other up. It's really fascinating. Uh, building up is an interesting Greek phrase as well, which means to make more able. Isn't that interesting? Right? To make more able. The idea here is that believers, you guys, are to use your gifts to make one another more able. More able to do what? Live better lives? Well, certainly. But you see, living a better life is, is, is not the end goal, right? Living a better life falls under the meta objective or goal, which is to make believers more able to emulate Christ or to make them more like Christ. That's what it has to do with. Building up has to do with making one another more like Christ. That's what it is. So, and, and then just think for a moment about who Christ is. He's God, He's all of these things, right? All these phenomenal things that He is. But one of the things, if, 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 if I'm building you up so you can become like Christ, and you build one another up so that they, everyone else can become like Christ, we need to think of who Christ is in this context. Is He God? Yes. You know, he's divine? Yes. Is he the, you know, the Father, Son, second person of the Holy Trinity? Yes. Is he the Messiah? Yes. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. It's that, but it's more. 
think of Christ as a servant. I can't think of a better example of a servant ever in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. You know, I would imagine that even as an infant, he was probably finding a way to serve his parents. I mean, just his entire life is just, just, his trademark is service. And you think about it, if we're going to be made like Christ, if that's the goal, to make us like Christ, to build one another, another up, to make us more able to emulate and to be like Christ, and he's a servant, what are the qualities of a servant? If we're going to look like Christ, if we're going to be like Christ, then shouldn't we bear the same qualities that he bore? And you know what's so fascinating about this passage as Paul listed them earlier? They are humility. They are gentleness. They are patience. Bearing with one another in love. They are an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's back in verses 2 and 3. A servant is one who walks in a manner worthy of their calling. If you are being made like Jesus, you're going to be humble, you're going to be gentle, you're going to be patient, you're going to be doctrinally sound, you're going to be walking in a manner worthy. That is our goal, friends, to help each other to do this. A servant is one who agrees. One who's being made like Christ is a servant. He agrees with Christ who said, I have not come to be served, but to what? And what else did he say? I came to what? Lay down my life for the sheep. Well, that's Jesus' job, not mine. Well, you know what? It is Jesus' job, and he did that. And guess what? He wants us to follow his example. We are to lay down our own lives for one another. A servant lives like Christ who laid down his life for others, for his people. So building up has to do with making us more able to emulate and to be like Christ. In particular, as a servant. As a humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. One who is really determined to maintain the bond of peace and unity in the church. One who walks in a manner worthy of their calling. That, that, that is, in a way, my task to you and your task to one another. That's what we're called to do. Another thing to note is that the, and this is just plain as can be, the spiritual gifts and even our natural gifts have not been given to us for our own good. And there's such rampant abuses in the church today that we have these gifts that we've been given and they've been given by grace and empowered by grace and somehow we internalize them and we internalize them and we just use them for our own benefit and for our own happiness and joy and these sorts of things when the very purpose of them being given was for others. You have been given gifts, not for you, for others. And guess what? Others need your gifts and you need theirs. Christ has given us these spiritual gifts and these natural gifts for the sake of others. They're all to be used for equipping and building up the body of Christ. We are called to give what? It's our little motto. Our time, talent, and treasure to this cause. How do we build one another up? 
How do we do this? How do we make people more able or more like Christ? What do we engage in? How do you do this for one another? Well, it's really the same thing that I do for you. The Scripture, prayer, fellowship, modeling it, exhortation. It's the same stuff. God has appointed means of grace, things that make us like Jesus. Stick to those things. Relational uh, discipleship, interacting, listening. Wow, here's where you're struggling. Let me exhort you and help you. Iron, sharpening iron. That's how we do it. And we use the Scripture and prayer and those tools that God has given us to build one another up and to make us more like Jesus. If you're not using the means of grace that He's prescribed, you're not going to become like Jesus. Your, your efforts and works are futile. You're wasting your time. We do it by passing biblical knowledge back and forth and encouragement, accountability, loving correction, all of these things. And let me tell you, when each of us uses our gifts as described, powerful results will be achieved. Look at 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul described three things that will happen when believers use their gifts to equip and build up the body of Christ. Three things that he puts here. Number one, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Faith here does not have to do with salvation. It's not saving faith. It has to do with the content of the gospel in its most complete form. As the church at Corinth so clearly illustrates, disunity in the church comes from doctrinal ignorance and spiritual immaturity. When believers are properly taught, and when they faithfully do the work of ministry, and when the body is thereby built up in spiritual maturity, Unity of the faith is the inevitable result. Let me tell you, we don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience unity of the faith. I mean, some commentators take these three things that Paul listed here and they think that these are for the afterlife. They're only possible when we go to glory. No, they're not. If they were, then Paul wouldn't be talking about them here in this context and this way. He's telling us what our gifts are for. He's saying now. You can have these things and experience these things now. If we use our gifts, if we all do our part to equip and build up, I do believe that we can attain to the unity of the faith. In some ways, we're experiencing that here now. After nearly four years of ministry, we're getting there. But I do believe we can go further and experience even greater, deeper, more profound unity. And the question is, what do you need to do? What do you need to do to help our body achieve this goal, this church? Second, until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge of the Son of God does not have to do with salvation. It has to do with a deeper or fuller knowledge of Christ. It means growing in our relationship with Christ. If we all use our gifts and do our part to equip and build up the body, I believe we can attain to the knowledge of Christ. We can grow in intimacy with Him and in a deeper knowledge of Him. That's what it means. And I believe we're doing that in some sense too here after four years of ministry. But the question is, what do you need to do how do you need to engage to help us fulfill that goal and achieve that goal? Three, until we all attain to mature manhood. Attaining to mature manhood means to become spiritually mature. God's great desire for His church is that every believer, without exception, come to be like His Son, manifesting the same character qualities of the one who is the only measure of the full-grown, perfect, mature man. Now, it's pretty obvious that, that we can't reach the highest level of maturity. We cannot reach perfection. So that's not what he's talking about. But what he is doing is exhorting us to pursue 
maturation, to pursue maturity. We can't become perfectly like Christ in this life, but we can become each day more and more mature in the faith and more and more like Him. And that's what He's exhorting us to do. That's one of the results when, when we're all engaged in our gifts and building one another up. That's one of the things that happens. We become more mature. I'll be wrapping it up here in a moment, but I really like what Paul did in verses 14 to 16. He listed what a spiritually mature believer looks like. He did. He put five things about them, and they'll go very quickly. If, if, if we're all engaged, and if we're all attaining to the unity of faith, and attaining to the knowledge of the Son of God, and attaining to mature man, and we're becoming mature, the result will be that we as believers will look like what I'm going to read off right here. Spiritually, number one, spiritually mature believers behave like adults. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be what? You know what children do? Uh, they're very, well, when they're really, really young, they don't do a whole lot except, you know, crave food and, and need their diapers changed and all that. They get a little bit older, they start developing personality, it's kind of really cool and all that, but they kind of start becoming like really, really uber selfish, especially when they have siblings. They just act very, very immature. And none of us say, I can't believe, Jimmy, you're five and you're acting like this. He's a five-year-old. That's how they act. They are selfish. All they think about is themselves and their toys and their food and all of that stuff. Well, there's a spiritual parallel here. The mature believer doesn't act like a child. He can feed himself. He can get himself to church. <laughs> I mean, there's just, just go down, the, just think about it for a moment. We, we don't, if we're spiritually mature, if we become spiritually mature, we behave like adults, not spiritual children. We're not like newborn babies who crave spiritual milk. We want meat. Feed us. Feed me. Number two, spiritually mature believers are doctrinally secure. Verse 14. They are not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. When they hear the garbage, they like, they're steadfast. That's not true what you're saying. Perfect example is the guy I was telling you about earlier. I mean, he, you know, he professed to be a believer and he professes to be mature and he's been in the faith longer than I have and all that. He, somebody suggests that he reads a Richard Dawkins book. He reads it. Now he's an atheist. What's his symptom? Spiritually immature. Got persuaded by something felonious. Now, I'm not picking on him. I'm just telling you it happens. If you're a spiritually mature believer, you will be able to read that stuff, and I would say don't do it because it's not worth your time, but you can see those things and hear those things, and you can discern, and you're not going to be like all of a sudden, well, now I'm going in the opposite direction of what I was doing on Tuesday. A spiritually mature believer is not persuaded by error. They are doctrinally secure. Number three, spiritually mature believers speak in a way that is consistent with Christ. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in what? Man, that's what the spiritually mature believer does. And I tell you, man, if that's one area right there where I wrestle, where I need to mature, it's that one. Remember, I unloaded on that guy with a Bible bazooka. That's a tough one. Especially when somebody's saying, your God's stupid and so are you and all that. And you're sitting there going, you're stupid. And then you hit send, and then you go, ah, come back. And you can't. And it's out there. But if it's on Facebook, you
can delete it immediately. It's wonderful. Pretend that you never said it. A mature believer speaks the truth in love in their relationships, in their family, to their children, to their spouses, to others. That's what they work on. Four, spiritually mature believers continue to grow and become more and more like Christ. Verses 15 and 16, we are to grow up in every way. That means to become like Christ. Into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Spiritually mature believers don't arrive at some point and then stop with the learning. I'm there. They continue to engage the means of grace, to fellowship at church and with believers and learn and grow and grow and become more and more like Christ. And fifth, last, spiritually mature believers use their gifts to contribute to the development of the body of Christ. Verse 16, when each part is working properly, what happens makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When every spiritual mature believers, just the bottom line, that's one of the big ones here, when they, they are the one, they use, they actively engage and use their gifts to build others up constantly using their gifts for that goal. They are the members of the body that are working properly. And and believers, people who profess to be believers who don't use their gifts, are like dead limbs on the body. And the limbs that are alive have to constantly compensate. If you have a bunk hand, this hand's going to be a lot stronger. That's what happens. Lastly, Using our gifts to equip and build up the body of Christ promotes unity in the body of Christ. And that seems to be Paul's main point in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. You just think about that for a moment. When every believer is engaged, the church runs as it should. The service load is distributed evenly, and it can be just massive at times. People don't get burned out. Everyone experiences joy and unity when everyone is using their gifts. But when members don't engage, it throws the body, it throws the body off and everything else out of balance. Let me just exhort you. If you are a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift and you have natural gifts. Figure out what they are and use them to build one another up. The elders and I will continue to use our gifts and I'm even asking God, how might I be able to use them in greater measure in 2016? How might you use me to use my gifts in a broader way? I'm telling you, you engage and use your gifts. We keep doing what we're doing. We keep equipping and you keep building one another up, man. You know what's going to happen? We will attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, and to mature manhood and womanhood. And we will experience and enjoy in a much fuller measure the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Merry Christmas.